as we continue our study in times like these, turn with me to Luke 6, a house on the rock. I didn't plan it this way, but these days kind of sneak up on us. So I haven't forgotten it's thought Father's Day, and I'm going to have something really sweet for you guys at the end. But what an appropriate text for dads. House on the rock. In Luke 6, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but in Luke 6, in verse 46, before we start. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted according... Accordingly, is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it and immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray that, first of all, Lord, that I might be spirit-filled, that the message might be from you, and that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, allowing the word to make a home in our heart, that when the The storms come, we have the word hidden there that the Holy Spirit can use so that we will not be shaken. Well, we thank you that you placed us in this time and this place, though it seems our culture is deteriorating, our leadership has turned their back on you, they call good evil and they call evil good, and yet you have placed us here to be found faithful, to be fruitful. And Lord, we're thankful. Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful in our time, in our place. Lord, give us understanding of the word. Give us an enthusiasm about obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus knew storms were coming for these men. They were going to get shaken by what he knew was coming. Even his own crucifixion, which... The Father had ordained, which was necessary that we might be redeemed. And in the middle of that ministry, and they probably wondered what was going on because they liked the idea that he was going to be the king, that he was the Messiah. But he kept telling people after he healed them, don't tell anyone. And What's up with that? And it seemed that the leadership of Israel, the spiritual leadership was on a totally different page, and I'm sure that confused them. And so in the first 19 verses, it kind of puts us into the context. They were walking along on the Sabbath day, and they were taking some wheat, as they, some grain as they were going by, just like a guy might be out in the field and just, well, not in Laramie because we don't have fields like that, but if you were from a little lower elevation where they had oats or grain, they take that and rub it together in their hands, and that's, they, they, that's called harvesting, and then doing a little winnowing, and then they would eat it. Must have been really hungry. And uh, because he was already on their radar, it seemed that the religious leaders were always sending these little 
their little henchmen out to dog his every step. And another passage is, why do they eat without washing their hands? And in this place, how come they break the Sabbath? Because uh, they're reaping and harvesting. And Jesus, he says, listen, don't you guys know the scripture? They're, they're the experts, right? Don't you know the scripture? And you need to understand in this context, the Pharisees are there every step of the way. And he's not afraid to point them out. Because he's teaching his disciples, this is what you're going to have to deal with in the world. He said, I send you out as sheep among ravenous wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. And he's teaching them, how do you operate? He was operating just like Psalm 23 says. The Lord has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. That's right. You're always going to be surrounded as a believer. Doesn't mean you quit or get bitter or give up. It's the natural environment for a believer to be surrounded by unbelievers. But we have the opportunity to be a light. So, he says, have you never heard? You guys forgot the scripture where David was hungry and he was fleeing from Saul. And he stopped there at Shiloh. And there was the bread there, the show bread that was only lawful for the priests to eat. If you remember the story, David said, listen, uh, we're really hungry. These guys are hungry. And I think it was a high tub. The high priest said, uh, all I've got is a show bread. He says, if, if, if the young men have been pure, then they can eat that. And so David was given that show bread. And Jesus said, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's, like, that, that's kind of like going to Michael Jordan. No, it's worse than going to Michael Jordan and try to teach him how to play basketball. You see, here's the God of the universe that created the world. He gave Israel the laws, and they're trying to instruct him on what's right and wrong, what, what, are, the, what are the fine points. But, he, you know, Jesus isn't distracted. He's not getting angry. The Bible says that in Matthew that he didn't quench the smoking flax, and he didn't break the bruised reed. He didn't get dis, dis, discouraged or distracted by these false teachers. But he was also pointing out the disciples while he's teaching, hey, this is how you handle this. So it's another Sabbath, and so I don't know if they brought the man with a withered hand or they just knew. Now, this is amazing to me. Remember Jonah? After he gets spit out by the belly of the fish, he goes in rebellion with a bad attitude to Nineveh. I mean, this guy is the worst preacher ever, which just shows God blesses his word in spite of the attitude of the preacher. And so he goes and he preaches, I don't know what, repent, God's going to judge you. I don't think it was a very passion-filled message, but he did what God told him. Then he went up and he sat up above Nineveh and waited for God to obliterate it. And what happened when they all repented? He was mad at God. I knew you were merciful, God. I knew you'd forgive them. And that's these Pharisees. Wicked, wicked heart. Here's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus knows he's there, so he says, you, come here. And then as he's coming, he says to those Pharisees and those, those fellows that were there to trip everybody up, what do you think? You, you got the Sabbath down. You, you know all things. Uh, you think it's uh, right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? They're not going to answer. They're kind of looking at each other. Now listen, 
Jesus was not politically correct, and he put people on the spot because he cared about them. He cared about them. They don't answer me. They says, hey, fellas, stretch your hand out. Doesn't even say that he touched him. He stretched his hand out, and the man was healed. And what was the reaction to a supernatural miracle like that? Supernatural, no explanation. They hated him. They hated him. And they got together to see what they could do to Jesus. You think your unsaved friend, if he just saw a miracle, he gets saved. Uh Uh-uh. No, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? God knows it. The only thing that will save your friend is a miracle of God that touches the heart and changes their heart. That's what we need to be praying for. That, that their heart would be receptive to the gospel. And then when God gives you the opportunity, that's what you give them. The pure gospel. Don't try to shape it up or make it taste better. Just tell them, Jesus died on the cross for your sin and you're in trouble. But he rose again. And he calls you to redemption. You can receive Jesus. But not these Pharisees. They were bitter and hard. And so then Jesus takes the whole night and he prays. You ever, you ever thought about that? Jesus knew God. I mean, he was God. Him and the Father were very close. And yet, as our example, when there's a big decision to be made, Jesus, the Son of God, spent the whole night in prayer, fellowshipping with the Father. Now, these, these disciples were one of the many that were following him, and he had a special relationship with it. Remember, when he came out of the wilderness, he kind of went up there where he left off, where John was baptizing, and John says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and, and John and Andrew begin to follow him. And uh, I don't know if they kind of bumped into him, but he said, what do you want? And they said, uh, where do you live? I think that's kind of funny. You're going to talk to the Savior of the world and, uh, well, uh, where do you live? Where are you staying? He says, come and see. And maybe we'll get their brothers. And by the time they get over the top of the Lake of Galilee, they, they land there in Capernaum for a little bit. And then he says, hey, guys, i got a wedding to go to. You want to come with? So they go up to the wedding and they see him change the water into the wine. They come back and they probably go back to fishing. So they're on and off with Jesus. And then one day he comes by and he says, hey, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. But now he's going to make them apostles. And he comes back down from the mountain. He makes them apostles. And then they start their ministry. And it says there, you get down to verse 19, Jesus was healing everybody that came to him. And I'm sure they're thinking, wow, this is awesome. This is great. We just heal people. Eventually, everybody's going to get one over. They're going to see what we see. And then he turns his attention to them in verse 20. And he's teaching them. Everybody's listening, but he's teaching them. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's like, whoa, what? Happy are the poor? Here in verses 20 through 23, what he's saying is, Be happy. Don't be distracted. This is not the end. Your best life is later. It's not now. Don't expect that in this life, you're going to get your dream house. You're going to, in fact, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. This is not the best right now. The best is later. So he said, be happy. 
that you're poor right now. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Happy are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy. In my comment, one of my commentaries, the parallel passage was in Malachi where it says, when, you never see a, a calf get let out in the spring. He's been in the barn. Sammy had a couple little twin goats over there. Baby goats are, are just so fun, and, and baby calves are fun because they got no care in the world. They don't know they're going to be meat someday. They just know that spring is great and life is great and calves, and, and, and they, just, they just jump around. They kick their heels up. He said, when people begin to treat you terribly and they ostracize you and they lie about you, you need to run and jump around like a calf. Because your reward is great. Your identification with God, with Jesus Christ, is going to cause persecution. Your best life is now. You won't believe what's coming. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and, of which, have not have ended, and which have not entered into the heart of man, in other words, you can't imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You identify with the Lord so much that you get persecution, you need to get excited. Because you can't imagine what God has prepared. And whatever you suffer here is going to be light compared to the weight, the heaviness of the weight of the reward of glory later. In verses 24 through 26, if you are striving to have your best life now, whoa. Whoa. That means one thing out here in Wyoming. Whoa means slow down and stop, and that'd probably be a good thing. But whoa here in the Greek, uai, it means horror. How dreadful. How dreadful for you to, to aim to have your best life now. You think, I'm building my dream house. The old gospel song says, a house or a cottage, why should I care? He's building a mansion for me over there. You can't imagine, so why would you waste your time with that now? Yes, you need shelter, right? Nothing wrong with having a nice house. Understanding that as believers, your house ought to be a center for ministry. Luke 16, Jesus gave some instruction. He said, you know, God gives you things. He gives you wealth. Not sinful to have wealth. It's just a stewardship. So you can use your things so that when you get to heaven, there will be people to welcome you there. Woe. Woe to you who are rich, who are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well-fed now. You will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Woe to the churches in America that try to be politically correct and satisfy the unsaved crowd. Woe. Oh yeah, you can get people like you. You can get an entertaining crowd, an entertainment system, so that people say, well, we like that church. But Jesus says, woe. 
Warren Wiersbe wrote this. Listen, listen this is really powerful. The, the four woes all share a common truth. You take what you want from life and you pay for it. You get what you want out of life. You want immediate wealth, fullness, laughter, and popularity? You can get that, but there's a price to pay. That is all you will get. Jesus did not say that these things were wrong. He said that being satisfied them with them is their own judgment. Get that? Being satisfied with this life and getting all you want is its own judgment. H.H. Farmer wrote that to Jesus, the terrible thing about having wrong values in life and pursuing wrong things is not that you are doomed to bitter disappointment, but that you are not. Not that you do not achieve what you want, but that you do. When people are satisfied with the lesser things of life, the good instead of the best, then their successes add up only as failures. These people are spiritually bankrupt and do not realize that the church of Laodicea, they thought they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. And God looked at them and said, you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Because they were satisfied with the things that life provided. Wiersbe goes on to say, life is built on character and character is built on decisions. But decisions are based on values. And values must be accepted by faith. Moses made his life-changing decisions on the basis of values that other people thought were foolish, but God honored his faith. The Christian enjoys all that God gives him because he lives with eternity's values in view. C.S. Lewis used an illustration satisfied with mud pies. He said, so many people in life are like little poverty-stricken children playing in the ghetto making mud pies. And someone comes along and offers them a holiday at the sea. And they say, oh no, because they can't imagine that. So they're just satisfied to sit and make mud pies. Verses 27 through 38. So you really want to know Jesus? You really want to know Jesus? You see, there's the instruction about really having a life that is Structured so that storms won't destroy it, needs to be close to the rock. That means you've got to dig out all that other stuff that's between you and Jesus. By making decisions, I will be obedient to the word. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, the psalmist said, How shall a young man make his way straight? How can you storm proof your responsibilities, your stewardship, your home, dads? By not just knowing what the Bible says. A lot of people do that. But your children are not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you do. Because you're the one making the path for their feet. And if you don't make a straight path for their feet, they're going to get turned out of the way. They're going to stumble. And I think probably one of the worst stumbling blocks are half-baked Christians. If you come from an unsaved home, you don't use your parents as an example. You just say, well, i got to go to the Word. You are half-baked dad. Say, well, yeah, we give our nod to God. We go to church, you know. And, and the word does not have resonance in your life. You're not decorating the word. The word does not dwell in you richly. They're going to do what you do, not what you say. And so you need to take, make some decisions when those, those opportunities come to say, you know what, we're going to be obedient. Like Joshua said, if it seemed evil for you, to follow this God that's delivered you over and over again, you do what you want. 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's not just a plaque you put up. That's a path that says, no, no, what God's word says it, those aren't suggestions, those are commands. That's how you know if you love Jesus. 1 John 5, 4 says, this is, this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments, and you don't see his commandments as a burden. Oh, man, you love God's word. You ever take time just to read through Psalm 119? It's a long one. But the whole thing is about the sweetness and the power and the protection and the joy of God's word. You want to love Jesus? Get close and love like Jesus loved. Verse 27, I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. And whoever takes away your coat, don't withhold your shirt from him either. What's Jesus trying to say? This stuff is going to burn. It doesn't matter. Don't lose sleep over losing stuff. It's just a little pop quiz. How many Christian businessmen and women stumble because a deal goes bad or all of a sudden they're going to make money and so they get angry and bitter? Oh, it's just a little pop quiz. God's just seeing if your hands are open or if you're holding on and beginning to worship the blessing more than the blesser. He says, no, no. You love what God loves. God loves people. This is a tough one. Verse 30. We should, you know, I'm telling you, this is a tough one. Give to everyone who asks you. What? If people find that out, we're going to run out. Lord, what about me? There'll be nothing. I, who put that in? You know what? I bet the Apostle Paul was messing with this text here. He did the same thing when it talked about roles in the home and men and women. And now he's probably messing with. Give to everyone who asks you. And somebody takes something away from you, don't ask for it back again. Whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Now, that, that goes two ways. You say, well, people ought to do what's right, so I'm going to treat them the way that they should be treated. It's like, no, 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 that's not what he said here. If you were lost in sin... And you'd had a bad upbringing, and you thought good was evil, and evil was good, but you were broken, and you were looking for help. How would you want people to treat you? Last week, we talked about that fellow that walked into a diner and decided maybe they should have a birthday party for a prostitute. She deserved it? No, but neither did I. I didn't deserve God's love and God's grace. Jesus said, listen, you want to know my heart. You want to be close to me. This is the way I love. It's supernatural. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love one another. That's not a big deal. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. You hear people say stuff like that. They have their own theology. Well, I'll tell you what. If you treat me right, I'll be the best friend you ever. But you mess me up, bud. Is that what Jesus said? No. How in the world can we live up to this standard? This is not natural at all. No, it is not natural. 
This is supernatural. This is the opportunity for you to love the way Jesus loved and to see God work. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Listen to this. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. About the time you think you got it up on somebody, you remember that God has forgiven you an eternal debt. And you don't want to be like the fellow that the king forgave him millions that he could never repay, and then went took his friend by the throat for 20 bucks. No. Nobody can ever sin against you as much as you have sinned against the God of glory. He said, well, hold it now. You know, I, no, I, Pastor, that's going a little far. I mean, no, no. You understand something. When Jesus died on the cross, according to Isaiah 53, he saw those he would redeem, and it pleased the Father that crushed the Son, making you guilty of the blood of the innocent Lamb of God. Nobody has ever damaged you that much. Do not judge. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Do not judge, you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Listen, folks, you can't out-love God and you can't out-give God and you can't out-supply God. But see, that's our little human will that comes up and he says, our little human will says, hey, whoa, enough already. People will drain you dry. No, about the time you think you're running out of mercy and love and provision, God said he will always, 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, he will always provide seed for sowing and bread for food. The Lord will provide. But what happens when you really depend on the Lord? You get to see the Lord work personally in your life. I want to tell you, Christian, there's nothing like that. You can play it safe. You can manage like the world does. Take Dave Ramsey's stuff and have your goal be, hey, I want to get wealthy so I can help people. Or you can take Jesus' word and say, hey, try to get poor. Yeah, that's why Dave Ramsey's stuff sells really big. I'm not against being good, good stewardship and all that. But why does it sell in the churches that don't preach the gospel as well as it does in the other? Because it's about wealth. And we go, yeah, man, give me some more of that. I just want to be faithful. I'll tell you what. Lord, you help me win the lottery, I'll give you 10%. Well, I want to look at that for a minute from God's perspective. Why would he give all you that and then just get 10% back? That's, he can just keep it all himself. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness. Everything belongs to God. Everything that lives and breathes on this earth belongs to God. And when you tithe, you're not giving him something that's yours. You're just saying, God, you own everything. You own everything in my life. And I'm interested in seeing you work in my life. And I'm interested in what you want me to do with all of everything I have. You cannot give the Lord. But I'll tell you something, if you're going to love like that, if you're going to live like that, it takes grace. So you better dig down and get right next to the rock. But if you do, whoo, the joy of knowing the Lord that way. Then in verses 39 through 45, 
Jesus take, just takes a little time, and he uses a quite humorous illustration here, but he says, these teachers, because they're sitting right here. He's calling them them and there, so they're right there. And they may act like they're not listening. I know some folks come to church over the years. I've seen people come to church, and I don't know why they've got to come, but I'm looking out the window because I am not listening to what you have to say. I don't know if the Pharisees are like that or if they were just like looking at him, but, you know. But he was, he was teaching. You know why? Because he loved them. He, he, he wasn't enemies of them. Satan was their enemy. They were fooled by Satan. They were caught in his trap. And the Bible says later that many of the priests came to know Christ as Savior also. And so Jesus wanted to reach them too. But he tells the disciples, listen, you need to consider the source. These are false teachers. Don't be distracted by their seeming affluence and success and the power they may seem to will. Don't, don't be afraid of their faces, he told Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Don't let them slow you down. They are what they are. They're false. They're clouds without rain. They're blind leaders of the blind. And he said, what happens when a blind person becomes an expert and begins to lead other blind people around? They both fall in the ditch. Don't be like them. A pupil's not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. What did they say about the apostles? Later, they're under persecution by these same fellas. But they speak with power and authority, and they say, huh, these guys have been with Jesus. They teach just like him. Then this illustration, I love this. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's coming out of your head? I was working in a, a big foundry, and I was an inspector, gunite, and they, they made, not, not only did they, they make the, the wheels, they also turned them. And as an inspector, I was walking by one of these machines, and a chip just happened to get over my safety glass and, and lodged in my eye, and I... I had to go down to the nurse. I couldn't get it out. I kept blinking. It wouldn't come out. It was stuck in there. And so I get down to the nurse, and the nurse is a sweet little old black lady, and she took such good care of us. But uh, I, I didn't know if she's really qualified to deal with this speck in my eye because uh, she had these big, thick glasses, and then she sat. Now, honey, you just sit down in this chair. So I did what I was told. I sat in a chair. And then she had this big old huge magnifying glass. So all I could see were these big glasses coming at me and this Q-tip kind of jabbing. I'm like, oh, oh, she'd come out. I'd move. She says, you know, hon, you're going to have to go down and see the doctor. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> but the doctor had the tools. He froze my eye and he got a little vacuum and he took that out and he vacuumed all the rust. And then he said, listen, son, you take this medicine and you don't stop till it's gone. And because infection in the eye is a serious thing. Can you imagine going to the eye doctor that's trying to deal with your specks, the little tiny pieces of lint, but they've got a big board sticking out of their head? He said, that's the Pharisees. And they're looking at you, and they're saying, you know, stuffing people's eye really bothers me. And you say, yeah, I bet it does. He doesn't say don't deal with your brothers and friends when you see they're stumbling, they got a problem. But first... Take the big beam out of your high. What was the big beam? They didn't go to the scripture. No, they thought they were wise in their own selves, and they just ignored huge things in the scripture. You talk to Jewish people today, and you ask them, well, what about what the Bible says? Oh, no. 
No one can understand the scriptures. That's why we got the rabbis. We got people to interpret that for you. You got all the history of the fathers to go there. And, and, and you know, you got the other stuff that you know, nobody can understand the word. That's a big beam. God gave us the word so that it might be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And we hide his word in our heart that we might have strength, protection, and direction for our life, provision, and spiritual food. Because storms are coming. And then he says, listen, I want you to know something. There's no tree, which produ- good tree, that produces bad fruit. There isn't one. Nor on the other hand, a bad tree, which produces good fruit. There's not a good tree that produces bad, and there's not a bad tree that produces good. For each, tru- each, <laughs> each tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they... Uh, I mean, does that make sense to you? That's just logic, isn't it? You go to an apple tree... And you expect apples. He said, don't expect these guys to give you anything good. Because their source is not from the foundation. They're not rooted and grounded in the love of God. They can't give you anything different. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. We talk about that a lot. You get squeezed. And what comes out is what's inside. So you go through a storm and all of a sudden you're distraught and you're empty and you're broke and you're saying, why me, God? Yeah, that's what was in there, nothing, right? doesn't mean you don't get hurt by trials or when the storm comes, but your reaction demonstrates what was going on. And the last section, 46 to 49, storms expose the strength or the weakness of a structure. That's just what he's saying. You can follow these guys if you want to. You know, they lay heavy burdens on men that they wouldn't even lift with their finger. But at the end, they've got nothing to offer you. They are clouds without rain. They got nothing. And he said, the bottom line, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I say. I don't care. You can get a t-shirt, sweatshirt, get a wristband that puts WWJD, but if you don't know what Jesus said, how are you going to know what he would do in your situation? Don't make it up. That's idolatry. Well, I know the Bible says this, but me and God got our own thing. Then you're outside the covenant. Because this is the new covenant right here. His word. Words mean things. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house. You want your house to stand in storms, folks? Storms are coming. They come to every single neighborhood. They're coming to your town. They're coming to your family. Storms are coming. It's just the way life is. Ever since Adam chose sin, storms have been a part of it. Now, one day we're going to be in heaven. There's no more storms. But here you get the opportunity to demonstrate faith. And endure some of those storms, fill up the sufferings of Christ, storms are coming. You can dig down and lay your foundation on the rock. When the flood comes and it hits your house, it won't shake. It won't shake. Now this building here, it's built on the rock. We had to actually get a well driller to come in and put caissons down in the ground we couldn't dig them ourselves it's solid rock and the week before the friday before we came into our building a tornado we never get tornadoes 
But we rejoice in that tornado. It hit this building straight on. All that left was a little tiny nick up there. Oh, it busted a couple windows. We got done, we said, all right, this building's strong. You see, that's the reaction Paul had to storms in his life too. We don't like storms. It's not that storms feel good, but they're a part of life. Now listen, I want to tell you something because we live, in, and I want you to understand what I'm saying. I've made a few comments about counseling, and you may think, oh, the pastor doesn't like counseling. No, no, no. Counseling discipleship. But if you think a counseling is so that you can be like the fool in Proverbs that just seeks to discover himself and the problem and the emotions and, and get inside so that you can be affirmed and feel better, that's not what we're doing here. See, counseling is not an alternative for obedience. See, you either need affirmation, and that's what you're looking for, or you need some excavation. What are you talking about, Pastor? When troubles come, and all of a sudden you realize, ooh, there's some weak spots in this structure, what do you do? You excavate, get down, and make sure that you're based upon the rock. When Christy and I were building a house up in Vitavu, uh, Bill Kirsting and, and my contractor, Bill Berenson, were building a awesome road for us and they built a road that went down across the creek and went up the other side where the house was going to be and then we had one of those hundred year rains what a blessing it just destroyed that road and we got done and i said we're going to need a culvert here and here and here just wiped it out that was a blessing now i could have said well life's going to be tough getting up to my getting up to my house now, I'm going to have to get me a Hummer or something. But other people got to use the road too. Listen, when you're going through trials, there are little ones following behind you. When you see weakness, how do you deal? Listen, some of you folks, Satan comes through with a, a, a storm and just leaves rubble in his path. And you say, well, how's it going? Well, I'm okay. Yeah. But, but you got no foundation. Look, that thing's just teetering. There's nothing there. Well, that's okay. That's the way I've always lived. Oh. In Isaiah 9, Jonathan Kahn points this out, that the Assyrians came down and they did a little attack and some bricks fell down, some trees got knocked over, and their response was, oh, Lord, our structure's weak. Lord, we need to get back to the basics. We need to get back on the rock. They said, oh, no, no, the bricks have fallen. We'll rebuild with stone. The trees have fallen down. The sycamores have fallen. We'll, we'll replant cedars, whatever doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If your, if your house is not on the rock, the storms are coming, it will destroy you. I don't care how tough you get, you're not tougher than the devil, and you're not tougher than the storms in life. But you know what? If your life is built on the rock, it won't even shake you. You can decide to hate storms. You can get bitter and hate God for allowing storms. But Paul said in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, but not only this. We glory also in tribulation because tribulation works patience. And patience experience and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is spread abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. When you go through trials based upon the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you just have more capacity for love and empathy and ministry because what you are convinced of is God is faithful. Listen, I've been through those deep times too. And you know what I come out thinking? Our first response in the flesh is, all right, I'm going to get safe and I'm going to avoid problems like that. There's no way. You can't avoid problems. But you know what I remember from the trials is the Lord. I remember the Lord. Oh, yeah, there was pain. There was sorrow. But I have never been closer to the Lord than when we're going through a hard time. Never. And he speaks peace to our soul. He is the balm in Gilead that heals a sin-sick soul. You find rest when you're walking with him. Romans chapter 8, he is our security in the storm. Verse 28 says, we know God. See, that's the key. We know God causes even the things that Satan throws in your path, even even death, he can cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. You'll remember this. The Greek word is hypernico. It just means super Nike. More than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And that's why Peter said, listen, in the middle of that trial, be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you of the hope that lies within you. You're going to have more ministry in times of trouble than you are in the good times. And then he says... I'm convinced, what? By the trials. But the time he went through the Lord in the trials, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, he said to know Christ, to know him, and the power of his resurrection He said, I want to know Jesus. Even it takes being conformable unto his death. I want to know Jesus. That's the life beat. That's the heartbeat of a true believer. And the storms just expose that. They just expose that, man, there's rock there. They're not going anywhere. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord's with me. Nothing can touch me when the Lord's with me. Paul had been through probably more trials than any other Christian. And what he was he convinced of? He gets to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 55. He says, hey, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? The sting of, sin is, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, my beloved brethren, you be faithful, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you say, whoa, following Jesus could cost me everything. That's exactly what his invitation is. Matthew Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Then he gives us kind of a business proposition. He gets you, let's think, think about some math here. He said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then forfeits his soul? Or if you lived your whole life and gained the whole world and all of a sudden you realized the next 10 minutes you were going to die, but you realized that, what would you give in exchange for your soul? Give everything. See, because, yeah, it's going to cost you everything, but what you get is Jesus. He is the treasure. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Are you building your life on the Lord? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man will become evident in the day, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive reward, but if any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, so is by fire. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. Storms are coming. You can go to the Lord and say, Lord, show me. James 1 said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally, and he's not going to chew you out. He doesn't upbraid but let that man that asks, ask without wavering. You really want to know? You really want to be on the rock? You want excavation so that your home, your life is built on the rock? Hebrews 10, 32 through 36. I love this. But remember the four days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly be, be, by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. Priscilla Jane Owens wrote old gospel song, Precious Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior love. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, it was his prayer that we be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, which per, it just surpasses all understanding. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, that we can have security, that we can have faith and even enthusiasm about the time where you've placed us because there's work to be done. And you've already taken care of what comes after life. We don't have to be afraid. We can get about our, be about our business of being faithful. Be about the business of harvest that's white already. And pray that you send laborers into this harvest field. And the Lord, send us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.